This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. About uh, three or four hours ago, I got a call on my cell phone as I was walking through the pleasant town of Pleasanton, California. It is an aptly named place, and I would recommend that you check it out sometime in the future, dear listener, when you are feeling like a Sunday drive with no place in mind. It's an idea, anyway. When I answered the call, my friend said, I feel like a rant. To which I replied, sure, have at it. Maybe maybe some good will come of it. She asked if I was paying attention to what happened to Sean White, the Olympian. And I said, no, I have no idea. My friend pointed out that he just won gold in the half pipe, I guess it is, snowboarding. And I guess he won gold a couple Olympics ago and then fell to silver last time and he's back on top again. You know, the usual Olympic story. Except my friend was ranting about the fact that while he was being interviewed after winning the gold, he was having to answer questions about allegations of sexual harassment made by some former member of his garage band. Allegations that date back seven years. Things that were evidently settled in court a year ago. I guess what happened was after he won the gold and was asked a question, he said, I want to talk about the Olympics, not gossipy stuff, or words to that effect. And the fact that he was using gossip or gossipy in, in the context of what are probably some serious allegations somewhere along the way uh, just set people off. And my friend said, can't they let the guy just have a moment in the sun? To which she added, this whole sexual harassment thing is just, it's just getting to be a bit much. And to which I would add, I, I know a lot of guys in particular who kind of think that it, it is getting to be a bit much. And actually, more correctly, uh, many women I know are saying it's getting to be a bit much. And frankly, I don't think I feel like saying too much about that today, except that I looked in an article that was in last week's The Week about this doctor, Larry Nasser, a case where the issues of sexual harassment are, I don't know, astounding. Actually, I shouldn't use the word harassment. I should say flat-out sexual abuse. This is a very odd story. Apparently, 156 women came forward last month, I guess, in a Michigan courtroom to tell some rather graphic stories about the sexual abuse they suffered at the hands of this former U.S. Olympic and Michigan State University osteopath. And uh, as far as Nasser goes, he's not going to be abusing any more women. He's been sent away to prison for 175 years. But this does raise the question of how in the hell did such a thing go on? as extensively and for as long a time as it did. It's being described as the biggest sexual abuse scandal in sports history, and one has to wonder how it is the U.S. Olympic Committee, USA Gymnastics, and Michigan State University dropped the ball on this. Reportedly, as early as 1997, the complaints started to be made. Reportedly, at least 14 Michigan State representatives received reports of sexual misconduct by Dr. Nasser. It's actually worse than the complaints being ignored. Um, it turns out that somehow the anger against this guy got redirected at the girls who were told they didn't understand the nuances of Dr. Nasser's intervaginal treatments. 
Reportedly, Michaela Maroney got paid $125 million by USA Gymnastics to keep quiet about it. The U.S. Gymnastics Board resigned in the wake of hearings, but uh, they and officials at the U.S. Olympic Committee and Michigan State can face possible criminal prosecution for protecting this guy. Reading about this in TheGuardian.com, Hadley Freeman said the gymnastics world has long valued medals over morals. Further fleshing out details, they noted that the Caroli Ranch, where Nasser carried out some of this abuse, was under the control of, described as, fierce Romanian coaching legends Bella and Marta Caroli. At that location, young female Team USA athletes were so deprived of food and water, they would beg their male teammates to bring them snacks. Anyway, this is, this is a, a big and terrible story, and I hope, I hope a lot of reforms come out of the necessary investigations into the cover-up. I think it's fair to say that big-time sports in this country and around the world is just uh, an, a national and international disgrace. We used to talk about some of that with our sports correspondent, Sean Minton. We haven't had Sean on in, in many a year, and maybe we should bring him back to discuss some of this. Something else I need to discuss, and not too happily, is the flap surrounding the appearance on this radio station last week of alt-right propagandist and white supremacist Richard Spencer. Some were outraged that Mr. Spencer was given, quote-unquote, a platform here at Davis to espouse his venomous views. It should be noted that he was given a grilling by his public affairs host, and again and again was challenged on statements he has made in the past and positions he takes today. Now, in some past shows, we made some passing mention of this individual. I don't know that we would bring him on in an interview setting, but I can't say with 100% certainty that we might not. We've had many controversial guests on this program in the past, and um, if you've been listening to KDBS as long as I have, which dates back to the 1970s, I think it's fair to say that there's been many a guest on various programs on this station that were, uh, well, pretty much of the flamethrower type, espousing all sorts of positions which I think could only be described as, in some instances, radical. On many occasions, I've heard someone espouse an opinion that I found repugnant and sometimes stupid and a lot of times plain wrong, but... Speaking on my own behalf, I'd say I never got all that upset about it. Isn't that what a free-form radio station and university are for? Letting people mouth off, weighing the alternatives, in some instances deciding that someone's an idiot and moving on? Well, I've always thought so. Just to pick one absurdist example, I was out on the quad one day, perhaps it was picnic day or one of the other festival-like occasions we have at the university, where a speaker from what I think it was called the One World Family in Oakland was explaining to anyone who would listen that flying saucers were behind the current energy crisis taking place and how all power companies were really doing was selling you your own energy back to you. On a more serious note, I've heard a lot of things, you know, coming through KDVS I thought were offensive. So I can't say I'm too surprised to observe that um, a lot of people found Richard Spencer pretty offensive. Some of what he had to say would, I think, uh, even under the most conservative guidelines, fall under the uh, heading of hate speech. 
I did listen to most of the interview. He said a fair number of things here and there that weren't completely nuts. And again, in every inch of the way, he was being challenged by the host. But so angry were some that calls went out for a change in policy at the radio station. This simply should never have happened, argued some. And therefore, steps needed to be taken to make sure that it would never happen again, at least not in the form of a one-on-one interview. Some openly advocated for a type of censorship board to be set up to screen prospective guests on radio programs and in some instances to require that a list of topics which would be discussed with the person also be outlined beforehand. It does not appear at this moment in time that that's exactly what's going to go down based mainly, I think, on the sheer impracticality of such a suggestion. We've been doing this program, Radio Parallax, since 2002. If someone had asked me back in 2002, or, or for that matter, now, to please hand in your list of guests you're going to have on, or, or prospective guests that you might have on during the next month, and please try and include with that a list of the topics you'll be discussing with them, I can assure you 100% that there had never been a radio parallax for the past 16 years. And to which I would add, if such a policy were put into effect tomorrow, there wouldn't be any radio parallax the day after. You know, we're just a couple people working here trying to throw this thing together. We don't have a staff to go book people. And neither, to my knowledge, does any other public affairs or music host at this station. When I used to work at Capital Public Radio, we would book guests weeks in advance. But then again, the hosts, in this case it was two hosts, had help from a producer, also an associate producer, and an intern, sometimes two interns, with sometimes additional help from other staffers at the station. That is what you can do at a professional station with lots of paid employees and volunteer help. KDVS is not that. From a surely practical standpoint, uh, th- it would not be possible to, to do business this way. But the problems with it lie much, much deeper. And I stress, at this moment in time, it does not appear that that's exactly what's going to be implemented, thank goodness. But imagine if it were. Who should decide which guests get a pass and which guests um, would be discouraged? It seems clear enough that everybody at KDVS is opposed to censorship, but would this not represent a form of it just the same, in spite of everyone's best intentions? If you're a regular listener to this program, you'll know that this is a subject near and dear to our hearts. This is not something KDVS is grappling with. Universities across the nation are grappling with this problem of what sort of speech should be tolerated. People of my generation, and though I'm not quite old enough to, to have taken part in the Mario Savio protests at Berkeley back in the 60s, but as a kid I remember hearing about them and later reading about them, and seeing on a mass scale the battle for information that took place across this country and still taking place today over, over the Vietnam War. Now I realize if you're a millennial, you're born in, I don't know, 1998, the Vietnam War is as far removed from you as the Roaring Twenties was to someone like myself born in the Eisenhower era. 
views are changing across the country, and I would have to say uh, not in a way uh, we can approve of. To that end, I would like to quote from an article by Edwin Chemerinsky. Mr. Chemerinsky is dean and the Jesse H. Choper Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law. He's also the co-author, along with Howard Gilman, of Free Speech on Campus. And I must say that the goings-on at UCD's sister campus, big sister campus, I guess you might say, of UC Berkeley, uh, well, it just it, it dwarfs any controversy taking place here at Davis. They've had a real a real fight down in Berkeley over over speakers that have been invited, speakers that have been disinvited, etc. And, um, well, let me just quote from the piece by the dean of their law school. Quote, We should refuse to allow hateful speakers on campus, unquote, a campus faculty member said. The statement was met with resounding applause. I mentally prepared for the response I was going to say next. It was September, and I was at a forum at which several professors, including me, discussed free speech issues before a large audience of students at the University of California, Berkeley. Several faculty and students had already implored Chancellor Carol Christ to revoke the invitations of conservative provocateurs Milo Yiannopoulos and Ann Coulter to speak on campus, and their declarations were met with enthusiasm. Finally, I spoke. Be clear that if Chancellor Christ were to exclude speakers based on their viewpoint, she would get sued and lose. The speakers would get an injunction and be allowed to speak. They would recover attorney's fees and maybe money damages. They would be portrayed as victims, and since they would get to speak anyway, nothing would be gained. Said Chemerinsky, no one applauded. He went on to say, I have been dean of Berkeley's Law School for several months, but before I arrived at campus, the university, home to the free speech movement of the 1960s, had become a battleground for a new kind of campus speech debate. In late September, elaborate security precautions were taken when conservative commentator Ben Shapiro spoke at Berkeley. $600,000 had to be spent so he could deliver his remarks without disruption. When conservative student groups attempted to host a free speech week and invited conservative speakers like Coulter and Steve Bannon, the campus steeled itself to spend in excess of $1 million to allow them to speak while ensuring safety on the campus. In the end, Free Speech Week was canceled by the student group that had organized it. Said Chemerinsky, I have been teaching First Amendment law to law students and undergraduates for more than 37 years. I have also litigated free speech cases, including at the Supreme Court. I believe that Chancellor Christ and the campus have done a superb job of adhering to the First Amendment, protecting free speech while ensuring the safety of students, staff, and faculty. But it's also become clear to me that current college students are often ambivalent or even hostile to the idea of free speech on campus. He goes on, Disputes over free speech on campus have long occurred, but today is different. Usually in the past, it was students who wanted to speak out and campus administrators who tried to stop demonstrations. Now it is often about outside speakers and outside disruptors, like the radical leftist protest group Antifa. The campus is just the place for their battle. At Berkeley and elsewhere, it is now often students and faculty calling for preventing the speakers, while campus officials are steadfastly protecting freedom of expression. In my seminars the past two years, before Berkeley I was at 
UC Irvine's law school, I was surprised by how much the students wanted campuses to stop offensive speech and the degree to which they trusted campus officials to have the power to do so. A 2015 survey by the Pew Research Institute said that four in 10 college students believe the government should be able to prevent people from publicly making statements that are offensive to minority groups. While teaching our class at Free Speech at UCI, Chancellor Howard Gilman and I realized that the students' desire to restrict hurtful speech came from laudable instincts. This is the first generation of college students to be taught from a young age that bullying is wrong. They have internalized this message. Many spoke powerfully of instances in which they or their friends had suffered from hurtful speech. They want to make campuses inclusive for all, and they know that hate speech causes great harm, especially among those who have been traditionally underrepresented in higher education. But I worry, too, that students do not realize the degree to which free speech has been essential for the advancement of rights and equality. There would not have been a 19th Amendment which gave women the right to vote without the women's suffrage movement and its widespread demonstrations. The civil rights protests in the 60s, lunch counter sit-ins and the March on Selma, demonstrations on campus, etc., were essential to bringing about the end of segregation. Those events, though, were ancient history for my students. I worry that they equate freedom of speech more with the vitriol of the anonymous messaging app YipGap than the anti-Vietnam War protests I participated in when I was in college. I was surprised by how little our students knew about the history of free speech, including the outbreak of McCarthyism when faculty and students suffered greatly from the lack of legal protection for expression and academic freedom. I want to pause in reading the article right there to note that, um, that although I and most people I know were a little young for McCarthyism, I can certainly personally attest to its aftermath. Three feet from where I sit right now, before this microphone, is a set of encyclopedias I have owned since I was a young teenager. They were a wonderful gift. I used them throughout my high school years, and once in a while I use them even today. They were given to me by a family friend who um, was basically tossed out of academia for his, what at the time were thought, offensive ideas. Because of this, and I think for the rest of his life, he found it impossible to return to the prestigious teaching position he'd formerly occupied. Let's put it that way. What had he done? Well, he was a communist. And I don't mean the sort of leftist person that a Bill O'Reilly might label a communist. I mean a real communist. Back in the 1930s and 1940s, he'd been an active member of the Communist Party here in the United States. As you know, or I, I certainly hope you know, dear listener, um, that did not go down well <laughs> in the 1950s. Now, although I personally liked this man very much and still think well of him, I really can't say there was no danger to some of the ideas he espoused back long before I was born. But then later in life, I had a chance to visit the Soviet Union before it collapsed. And let's just say, having seen it with my own eyes, I'm... I'm, I'm was not a fan of that system. And I would say if someone made the case that it was an oppressive means of governance that forced its citizens into servitude, well, I, I don't know. I, I'd have a hard time arguing with it. 
But was it right to throw out all hardcore leftists out of academia back in the 1950s and out of government positions? Well, I'd say no. Does a jerk like Richard Spencer advocate from positions that would be dangerous to people? I'd say yes, he does. But I would have to disagree with those who would say that it's wrong to give him any sort of platform. When we interviewed Walter Cronkite on this program many years back and asked him if there was someone he liked, would have liked to have interviewed had he had the chance, he answered Adolf Hitler. The reason being, he would have liked to have probed what it is that made that guy tick and, and allowed him to come up with his venomous ideas. I don't think you can effectively deal with such people without addressing them. But back to Mr. Chemerinsky's essay. He went on to say that every effort by the government to regulate hate speech has been declared unconstitutional. Over 25 years ago, more than 350 colleges and universities adopted hate speech codes. But every court to consider such a hate speech code declared it to be unconstitutional. The codes inevitably were far too vague in terms of what speech was permitted and what was prohibited. Of course, free speech is not absolute and can be punished if it incites illegal activity, constitutes a true threat that causes a person to fear imminent harm to his or her physical safety, or rises to the level of prohibited harassment. He goes on to say this does not mean that campuses are powerless in the face of disruptive or hateful speech. Even though there is a First Amendment right to speak, that does not mean protesters have a right to demonstrate in the middle of a freeway at rush hour. Although I would note, that a couple of years back, various protesters were stopping traffic in the middle of the freeway. He goes on to say, A campus surely could prohibit a large demonstration in a classroom building while classes are in session. Campuses can regulate when and where speech takes place in order to prevent disruption of school activities. Controversial speakers can be placed in auditoriums where it is easier to assure safety and prevent disruptions. Demonstrations can be placed in areas away from where classes are in session. Although the First Amendment applies only to the government, including public universities, private universities should follow these same principles. They are essential to academic freedom, which is at the very core of a university's mission. He goes on to note that although speakers have a right to express hateful messages on campus, that does not mean campus officials should silently tolerate such speech. It is important that campus officials denounce hate when it occurs and explain why it is inconsistent with the type of community we desire. Professor Chemerinsky goes on to quote a piece that takes a counterposition to his, in this case from Professor Robert Post. His response to that was that Professor Post argues that a primary purpose of a university is to educate students, so a campus would be justified in excluding speakers that it perceives as interfering with this mission. But the law says quite the contrary. It does not allow a public university to exclude a speaker by claiming that the viewpoint expressed would be so offensive to students that it would interfere with their education. He goes on to note that it is a logical fallacy to say that because basic free speech principles sometimes do not apply on campus, they must never apply. You know, I didn't mean to use up the entire segment on this topic, but here we are. And I don't want to leave it before quoting a couple minutes from a piece by Catherine Rampell, which appeared a few months ago in the Washington Post. The author cites a study that was done last summer at the Brookings Institute, which was motivated over concerns about the narrowing window of permissible topics for discussion on college campuses. 
Questions were asked designed to gauge students' understanding of the First Amendment. Noting that colleges do pay a lot of lip service to freedom of speech, despite high-profile examples of civil liberty squelching currently going on. Noted the author of the survey suggested this might not be to hypocrisy so much as a misunderstanding of what the First Amendment actually entails. When students were asked whether the First Amendment protects hate speech, 4 in 10 said no. This is, of course, incorrect. Speech promoting hatred, or at least speech perceived as promoting hatred, may be abhorrent, but it is nonetheless constitutionally protected. Students were asked whether the First Amendment requires that an offensive speaker at a public university be matched with one with an opposing view. Six in ten said yes. The First Amendment requires balance. This is mistaken. The author said the most chilling findings, however, involved how students think repugnant speech should be dealt with. Given the hypothetical of a university hosting a very controversial speaker, one known for making offensive and hurtful statements, they were asked, would it be acceptable for a student group to disrupt the speech, quote, by loudly and repeatedly shouting so the audience cannot hear the speaker, unquote. Half of the respondents said that snuffing out upsetting speech, rather than presumably rebutting or even ignoring it, was appropriate. Democrats were more likely than Republicans to find this response acceptable, 62% to 39%. Men were more likely than women, 57% to 47%. Even so, sizable shares of all groups agreed. By the way, respondents were also asked if it would be acceptable for a student group to use violence to prevent that same controversial speaker from talking. 19% said yes. I don't know. All I can say to to folks that that have this view is that, you know, check the bathwater you're tossing out. You may find the baby still in it. Anyway, I'm I'm so done with that topic. We have, what, two minutes left? How about a good news item? If you like astronomy, and we do, and we hope you do too, you may take some heart in noting that the planet Mars is going to make its best appearance between the years 2003 and the year 2034 this summer. If you remember what it looked like a decade and a half ago, and we hope you do, uh, well, you're in for a treat. It's going to look just as cool this summer. Might be a good year to buy a telescope. So for bumper music, I guess we should go out with uh, Lost in Space theme. I'm feeling a little lost in space. Anyway, this is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stick around. We're going to talk about other stuff in our second segment. (laughs) 